Don't Underestimate the Doctrine of Providence. That's a title of an article penned by pastor and uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary Professor Stephen Whitmer some six years ago, and in it he writes this, we should begin each day by asking God to give us faith to see his hand in every encounter. Paul Tripp prays three commendably commendable prayers at the outset of the day. One, Lord, I'm a person in desperate need of help today. Two, Lord, won't you, in your grace, send your helpers my way? And three, Lord, please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. Daily preparing ourselves to receive God's loving help in unexpected ways through unexpected people, perhaps through unexpected suffering and hardship, opens our eyes to see the loving activity of his hand in every circumstance. And we are watching for that fatherly hand. And so we are watching for that fatherly hand as we continue working our way through the Old Testament book of Ruth. To this point, the main characters of the story have been Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi is the widowed wife of Elimelech, who with her husband and two sons left Israel in a time of famine to live in a land called Moab. And while in Moab, Naomi's husband died and her sons married. Naomi became the mother-in-law to Ruth and to Orpah, and then her sons died, and all three women were left husbandless and childless. Naomi understandably decides to return to her homeland, but bids her daughter-in-law to stay in theirs. And Orpah returns to the home of her mother, but Ruth refuses. She will not let Naomi go. She insists on staying with her and accompanies her back to Bethlehem, and they arrive just in time for the barley harvest. In Moab, things had gone from bad to worse. In Bethlehem, they're about to take a turn for the better. Father, as we come before your word, we do so humbly. God, we are so thankful for this word, this Bible that you have given to us and the amazing wisdom that it contains. We pray, Lord, now as we search your scriptures that the very Christ who appeared to preach peace to Ephesus would be preaching here and speaking to our hearts about your glorious gospel and the beauty of the reconciliation available to us in Jesus. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we come to this second chapter of Ruth, if you have your Bibles open, that's a good tact. As we go through narrative, we kinda, I'll, I'll continue to reference these verses so you can see kind of where we're at. Uh, we're in the second chapter of Ruth, and we find the immediate introduction of a new character to the story. He is a man named Boaz. And in a moment, we're going to devote our time to getting to know this Boaz. But for now, what we need to know is that he owned a portion of a barley field, I'm sure among many fields in that area, and many which he owned. And at that time of the year, it was ready to be harvested. And that's important because it figures into the lives of Naomi and Ruth. Having come back from Moab, they find themselves now in Israel, they have to eat. And in order to be sustained, in order to eat, somebody has to provide the food. And so Ruth asks permission from her mother-in-law to go and to glean in the fields. To glean just means literally to pick up. 
She wants to go pick up some barley in the fields. She's asking for permission to go and pick up what the harvesters might have missed or what they left behind. God's law for Israel at that time placed three specific requirements on landowners for this reason, that people less fortunate than they could be cared for. You might not be a property owner in ancient Israel, but you could still benefit from property in ancient Israel. First, a landowner must leave a portion of their fields. In this case, it would have been the edges. You find this, I think, in the book of Leviticus. On the edges, unharvested, so that the poor, including the widows, and the sojourners, the foreigners, the travelers, could stop and pick. So the edges of the harvest uh, were to be left untouched. Second, they must leave whatever falls to the ground in the harvesting process. They must leave it where it lies. Um, they have to do that so that we can be sure that something is available again for the needy. And third, they were to harvest their produce, their fields or their vineyards, just once. And to leave anything that they might have missed or anything that wasn't ready to be harvested at the time of the first pass-through. So if a, a cluster of grapes is not ripe, then you leave it alone and you leave it on the vine. But you don't go back and get it. That's there so that somebody else can come and get it. If a stalk of barley isn't ready to be, to be cut or picked, then you leave it there. All this ensures that even in harvested fields and vineyards, some food is going to remain. And that is what Ruth is asking permission to go and get. The barley that has fallen to the ground and has been left behind. And so for us, living in down East Maine, what that means is Ruth is asking to go and rake a row of blueberries that's already been raked. Some of you have raked blueberries, and you know that, that, that raking in a, in a good patch can be heavenly, and raking where somebody else already raked is quite futile. Or it's apple season. This would be like going out to the orchard and choosing to pick on a tree that's already been picked over. Right? The, the, the easy stuff has been taken. There are a few things, and you're going to have to work hard to get it. And that's what Ruth is asking to do. And she's willing to work hard for this. She's willing to, to do this without complaint. We read already that she's industrious. She works from the beginning and with just a short rest. Now, Ruth happened, the ESV says, she happened to come to the part of the field that is owned by Boaz. And you know what? Guess what? Boaz happened to come from Bethlehem at the same time to check on his field. And some people would call that what? That's a coincidence, right? What a coincidence. But coincidence, it has been said, is God's way of remaining anonymous. If you are here this morning and you don't believe in God, or at least you have a hard time believing in a God who directs the affairs of man, then yes, this looks like a coincidence. But one of the truths of this book before us is just how in control God is of everything and how he orchestrates the circumstances to accomplish his purposes. Things that have the appearance of chance or fate or luck, they are not. And as we move on, we see that Boaz and, and Ruth showing up at the same time 
in the same place is in fact no coincidence at all. It is a divine appointment. It is an example of God's providence. So what is providence, you ask? Thank you for asking. Providence is a city in Rhode Island. That's what we know, right? I used to drive through it on my way to college. Providence is a city in Rhode Island, but guess what? It was, in fact, named for the merciful providence of God, a term that comes from the Latin providentia, from pro, meaning ahead, and videre, which means to see, and here it is, God sees ahead. Providentially, God led Ruth to the particular field of Boaz. Providentially, God has led Boaz to visit his field. One gets the idea in the second chapter of Ruth that perhaps God is up to something. And you know what? That would be right. Because God is always up to something. He's always up to something good. Introducing Boaz. So what do we know about Boaz? What does this narrative tell us about him? Well, verses 1 and 3 tells us that he is of the clan of Elimelech. Whenever we come across repetition in the Bible, you're probably tired of hearing me say this, but you should always, you should always take note of that. If you're one who likes to write in the Bible, then I would be circling these words and phrases that you find to be repetitions because the author is making a point. And when we come across repetition in a story... As concise as the book of Ruth is, where no words really seem to be wasted, we should pay special attention. Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, who in the first chapter we learned was from Bethlehem in Judah. Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. Boaz then is from the tribe of Judah. Also, we see in verse 1, he is described as a worthy man. The King James Version translates that Hebrew word as mighty, I believe. He's a mighty man. And that's not to say that he's, that he's big and brawny and physically imposing, but he is a person who has a strength of character. He has a might of character. His name means strength is in him. He, he seems to be the kind of guy that when he comes on the scene, people are relieved, happy to see him, comforted by his presence. The Hebrew word can mean powerful. It can mean champion. In verse 4, we see right away that Boaz blesses. Boaz brings a blessing. As he comes to inspect his harvest operation, he says to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. I don't know how your boss greets you, but I would hazard a guess. It's not like this. I doubt you walk into work every morning and somebody says, The Lord be with you. And you get the chance to say, and also with you. Interestingly enough, when we go down to the Dominican Republic, it's not uncommon for people to greet you with that phrase, God bless you. God bless you. But not in my lifetime. Other than that, have people ever greeted me that way? Usually the boss uh, shows up not to bring a blessing, but what? To make sure you're working. And I grew up uh, raking blueberries for the uh, Merrill family dynasty that some of you are familiar with here in this town. And uh, there was a particular boss in that family. So there was Osmond Merrill, of course, who owned the whole thing. And then he had his sons, Delmon, and he had, and he had um, Dickie, and then there was Joyce, and the whole family. Dell, World War II veteran, strong as an ox. 
when I knew him, he was scary. <laughs> when you would see him coming, driving his Jeep in the dust behind it on the roads of the blueberry field, you'd best be getting after the blueberries. <laughs> because this guy who made it through the Southern Pacific is coming to inspect your work. And I don't think he's going to show up and say, the Lord be with you. <laughs> Boaz is observant. We find that he knows his own. He notices those who are not his own. In verse 5, he sees Ruth and he wants to know, who is this woman? And the language that's used there might be a little offensive in a culture like ours, but he seems to indicate whose woman is this as if it were a matter of ownership. But as we see when we walk through the narrative, what he wants to know is who's taking care of this lady, and not who owns her. Because it's so easy to get offended sometimes, isn't it? But that's not what this is talking about. We'll see it as we go through. This is what he wants to know. This is his heart's cry. Who's taking care of this person? Who is this person? So Boaz is observant. He knows his own. He notices those who are not his own. He's also an initiator of relationships. Would have had every right to, to ignore Ruth or to walk past her or to give her not the time of day. But instead he draws near to her. He comes near to the foreigner and he moves toward her in kindness. And he doesn't treat her as someone who has come from away. And we Mainers might want to take note of this. <laughs> Just because someone isn't born here doesn't make them automatically a degenerate. Boaz doesn't treat her badly, even though she's clearly a foreigner. I imagine her accent would have given her away, just like ours gives us away wherever we go. He loves her. He goes to her. He moves toward her. She is worthy of his consideration and his estimation. And as we'll see, she's worthy of his wealth. Verse 8, now listen, my daughter, he says. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field they are reaping and go after them. Boaz here emerges as a protector. He absolutely cares about what happens in his fields. And he instructs Ruth to stay near the women in his crew. And he lets her know that he has charged the young men not to harass her. In verse 10, we see that Boaz shows favor. Ruth fell on her face before Boaz in his kindness, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Who am I? I'm just a foreigner. And again in verse 13, she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Favor here means unexpected kindness. We have another word for it as well. In Christian circles, we call it grace, an unexpected kindness. The kindness experienced by Ruth was not expected by her, and yet it was clearly and completely intended by God. She was amazed by the kindness that came her way, but God was not. And that's part of the refrain of this little book, friends, something we cannot miss. God is engineering events for your good, for our good, even in the midst of what looks bad. Do you really think on this day described in chapter 2 that Ruth jumped out of bed, eager 
to go elbow, elbow her way into a workplace where she may, because of her gender, because of her ethnicity, because of her social status as a widow, where she may be resented, taken advantage of, and even assaulted. Do you think she thought God was waiting to open the window of blessing on her that morning? It was just another day. And it was going to be a hard day. There were no two ways about it. No, she did not jump out of bed thinking today is a day that the Lord will rain down his favor on me. She got up and said, I, can, I need to go to work to eat. And that's why she's so humbled, why she bows down before Boaz, why she is overwhelmed at the turn of fortunes that had just happened. It just happened to her. Verse 14, Boaz is a gracious host with an open table. He invites Ruth to eat with him. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. What would Ruth have had for lunch if it weren't for Boaz? But he invites her to his table. And there with him she has bread and wine. She joins the crew. Figuratively speaking, she pulls up a seat at the table. I don't think they were sitting around a table. It's an old field. They're probably just sitting on the ground. But figuratively speaking, she's pulling up a seat at the table so she can be with these people. And she eats until she is satisfied and even then take some of the leftovers to share at home. More than enough. Take all you want. She eats till she's full and there's some leftover. That scene right there makes me recall lunchtime in the DR, where we would take a break from working on the hospital in La Romana, and a meal is provided out there in the, in the public area in a gazebo of sorts. And, and we can take, we missionaries can take all that we want, first and seconds if we want, while the crew that we're working with in the hospital and some of the hospital workers themselves would come out and surround the edge. Well, you can do that maybe for a day because you don't know what's going on, but eventually you realize what's going on. And what's going on is you get firsts and seconds. And if or when you become fully satisfied and there might be something left over, all these people go and divvy that up. So that may last for a day before you get there the next day and say, you come eat with us. And they do. And they take what they want. And if you're observant, you will see invariably more than one will take a sandwich and tuck it into a shirt. That's food for later. We call that leftovers. Some of you won't even eat leftovers. That's somebody's supper in the Dominican Republic. And so Ruth does the same thing. She eats until she's satisfied, and then she takes some home. 
Eating a meal is more than fueling a body, isn't it, when it's done in company? It really means something to share a meal with somebody. That's why it's special to have somebody over to your home or to go to somebody's home. That's why it's nice to go out to lunch after worship or prayer meetings, sit around a table and talk. It means a lot now. It meant as much, probably more even back then. That's why the Bible is so rich with all this banquet and table imagery. To share a meal is to share a life. To share a meal is to share a life, and to eat with someone is to accept that person, and to some degree in that culture will also have been a, a pledge to protect that person. So Ruth shares this meal because Boaz invites her to, and we see also that Boaz is generous. It's not just that he has a, 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 is a gracious host with an open table. He's a generous man. He gives Ruth water. If you're thirsty, go drink. He gives her wine and bread and roasted grain. And after lunch, verses 15 and 16, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So what, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Not only does Boaz honor God by keeping the law, the Levitical law, the ceremonial law, what he has to do as a landowner, but he willingly goes beyond the law's requirements. He's not just saving out the edges and saying you can pick up what's dropped and anything we might miss. If you want to come back in a couple of weeks and pick that up, you can do that also. No, this is, this is what Boaz is saying. Go right out there in the middle and take what you want. And nobody forbid her. And you, the guys in charge of putting together the bundles, make it a point to toss a few on the ground so she doesn't have to work so hard to find them. You have heard it said that the widow and the foreigner shall glean on the edge of the field and gather what has been missed. But I say to you, let her pick it from the middle and leave for her some of the work of your hands. That's what Boaz is saying. Ruth was fully expecting, would have been satisfied to pick up the scraps all day long. But instead, Boaz freely gives her more than she expects, and by statute for sure, more than she deserves. So the day comes to a close, and Ruth returns with her roasted grain from lunchtime and enough barley to feed she and Naomi for many days. And it is true that Boaz's kindness has saved the day, and we might say the week, and as we look ahead throughout the whole harvest, a month. So her mother-in-law wanted to know how she'd fared so well on that first day. Where did she work? Who was so kind to her? And Ruth told her it was a man named Boaz. And Naomi replied, he's a relative. He's one of our redeemers. Now that last part there, we're going to leave for next week when it becomes a little bit more clear what a kinsman redeemer is all about. But for now, I'd like just to reflect for a few minutes as we draw this to a close on this character who is new to us in the story, but for believers, I would imagine, seems for some reason to be quite familiar. And why might that be? A man from Bethlehem and the tribe of Judah, a worthy champion who brings the blessing and the presence of God wherever he goes, an owner of a field ripe for harvest, 
a master who comes to serve his servants, an initiator of relationships who pursues and welcomes the stranger and gives favor to those who seem and may even see themselves as unworthy, a protector of the vulnerable, a gracious host with an open table who shares his wine and bread, a man who fulfills the requirements of the law, a generous provider, a helper to the helpless, a savior, a redeemer. We started this passage with the idea of watching for the fatherly hand. And we have seen it, right, in this chapter, in the beautiful turn of events that Boaz brings into destitute Ruth's life. What we may not have seen, but it's certainly there upon a closer look, is how God has providentially arranged this story and the recording of it to include the portrait of his son and the pattern of salvation that Jesus brings. Born in Bethlehem, a lion from the tribe of Judah who comes to bless his people. Jesus, the eternal word of God, who was in the beginning, by whom all things were made, comes to his fields that are white for harvest. He comes to serve his servants. He eats with sinners. He makes friends with strangers. He goes out of his way to bless the needy. He shows favor to the undeserving, not only in his day-to-day -day life, but more so in his substitutionary death. We're assuming the cost of love for all who would receive it. Jesus secured our salvation out of his own pocket, as it were, with his own blood. He saves at his expense on the cross. Jesus took the punishment for our transgressions, and with his blood he paid the price for our iniquity. So Boaz is real and great, but you know what? Jesus is real and greater. Amen. We see Jesus represented in Boaz, and we could just as well see ourselves, see humanity, Represented in Ruth, in our natural sin-filled state, we are like her, refugees of a sort, pilgrims in a strange land, hungry and with little hope, undeserving of favor, with no reasonable or just expectation that we should be saved, that anyone should come to rescue us or care about us or provide for us. But listen, friend, this is what Jesus came to do. In the same way that Boaz shows up to give Ruth all that she needed, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the splendor of heaven to come to this earth, to his fields, to your life, to bring the blessing, to throw open the doors of heaven, to provide what you need to pay your way at his cost to make you part of his family, and to give you a seat at his 